Welcome to the Ake Woman podcast, where we speak with women of the diaspora. Our aim in sharing these inspirational stories is to show where there's a will, there's a way, regardless of who you are or where you're from. Our guest today, Nicole McCarthy, is someone whose journey to success took a bit of a roundabout route. The daughter of an Indian mom and English dad who relocated to India, her childhood was spent running around barefoot on a farm near Bangalore. From scaling trees to swimming in wells, she was not a girl headed towards a career in international finance and banking. But as managing partner at MV Credit in London, that is exactly what Nicole did. She left India and moved to England where she completed her education and got her BSc degree from City University London. Nicole pursued a career in at Bankers Trust, moved to Deutsche Bank, and at 29 became their youngest managing director. After a brief break to raise her daughter, she rejoined the world of finance. Nicole now lives in Kent with her husband and daughter. Let's find out more from this child of nature who jumped tracks to chase another green pasture. Hi, Nicole. It's great to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Your parents had an unusual romance. Can you share how they met and why your dad moved to India? Yeah, it was unusual. My dad was in the Merchant Navy and he was located in Mumbai for about 10 days. Went to a party where he met my mom. At the time he was 19, my mom 20. My dad fell in love with her straight away. So in the 10 days he was there, he met up with her, wooed her and proposed to her. My mom thought this was absolutely ridiculous. She said, no, look, you're a child. And of course not. And <laughs> turned him down. As far as she was concerned, that was that. Fast forward two years and my mom had joined Air India and she was being posted to London. As she was leaving, she actually met up with the guy whose party she met my dad at. And he said, oh my gosh, if you're going to London, you need to get in contact with Jeffrey Downer. He's always asking about you in letters, etc." So that's what she did. My dad at the time was in Plymouth. He shipped himself up to London, renewed the romance. And six months later, they were engaged. So crazy, crazy romance. <laughs> and then at that point, he was still in the Navy. My mom was still in Air India. He moved to BOAC. But once they got married and had me, and then my brother, 18 months later, my dad was convinced that he really wanted to spend a lot more time with his kids and be more at home as we grew up. In the meantime, he had absolutely fallen in love with India. He convinced my mom to sell up in England and to buy a farm in Bangalore, which is what they did. My mom, much less sure about that. She was a city girl. So being in a rural part of India was not her idea of a good time. But she was in love enough with him that she agreed to do it. And yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> That's so amazing. Any interesting stories about growing up with an English father in India? Oh, loads. Not just that I had an English father, but also he was a stay-at-home father. He did most of the cooking at home. Every time any of our friends came over, all the, the women loved to watch him and see him chopping onions quickly and all of that stuff. And you can imagine in India where it was mainly maids and stuff doing it, everyone found him quite a celebrity in just being able to do housework and things like that. He was very loving and demonstrative dad. So when he came to pick us up from school, he would always be there larger than life and hugging us and kissing us, which I used to find very embarrassing because all the other moms and dads literally just come pick their kids up and go home. And mine was the dad cuddling me and all my friends as well. He was quite popular that way. And then also because he was the token Englishman in South India, he quite often was involved with bit parts in films, in Kannada films, Hindi films, quite often playing the English villain or whatever. So we had a bit of that kind of lifestyle. So very different, as you said, growing up on a farm with this, what I thought was very unconventional dad. Looking back now, it was fantastic. But at the time, all I wanted to do was fit in. And this definitely didn't do that. Did your dad speak Kannada? <laughs> very badly, but yes, enough to get by, to bargain at the markets and things like that. But yeah, it should have really been better at it, I would say. Uh, not a linguist, my father. 
he definitely used the, oh, I'm sorry, I'm English, I don't understand, to get away with breaking rules from time to time. He was at a railway station picking someone up. He parked illegally. And the parking attendant came and said, hey, hey, you're not supposed to park here in Canada. And my dad was like, played the English. He said, so sorry, I don't understand. And he went, yes, you do, because I saw you in a Canada film recently. So I know you can speak. <laughs> they absolutely picked him out on it, which is fantastic. So dad, at that point, had to laugh and say, fair point, you know, and follow the rules. <laughs> Your mom was a nonconformist. How has her example shaped you? I'll tell you a great example. When my dad proposed to her, my mom said, look, I'm quite happy living with you, etc. She was an air hostess. And in those days, if you were married, you were not allowed to be an air hostess in Air India. You had to become ground crew. They only had single glamorous women as air hostesses. So she said, look, practically, it would make a lot more sense for us just to live together. That way I can continue to be an air hostess. But of course, my dad was absolutely shocked at this and said, no, absolutely not. You have to get married. That's the thing to do. So very much a non-traditional upbringing. She was very open to women doing different things. Dad was the one who did all the cooking and stuff at home. Mom very much was out and then working, etc. She's in her 70s and she likes to learn stuff that's different and new. In some ways, she's very traditional, but in other ways, absolutely out there. And again, for me now, looking back, what a fantastic role model. But at the time, I have to say, growing up, I wanted her to be completely traditional and conformist like every other mom who was staying at home and wearing a sari. My mom wasn't doing that. It's funny looking back how pathetically conformist I was as a child with these two very non-conformist parents. So I literally lived in a swimsuit and ran around the farm and jumped in wells. And that was really good fun. But the other side of it, especially as I became a teenager, it, it took me an hour and a half to get to school every morning and come back, which meant the socializing element was much lower than some of my other friends. The best I would get was walking with friends to the bus stop and then start my one hour journey home, whereas they could hang out with other friends around the corner. So it was a mix. I was very much wanting to be in the middle of a town in a city where it was all happening, as opposed to in the sticks. And even though there was so much about that that I loved, it was an interesting dichotomy. What's ironic now is my parents have sold that farm and they've got a flat in the middle of Bangalore, literally about two minutes walk from my old school. And I think, wow, that would have been an amazing commute. But you know, so be it. Parents tend to do that. I remember always wanting to have a pet, a dog when I was growing up. And my mom and dad said, no, no, no. As soon as I got married, within six months, they got a dog and they always had a dog after that. <laughs> what did your mother do when she moved to Bangalore? She couldn't be an air hostess because she was married. She worked as a receptionist at Mysore Mineral, a government-owned institution, and she was the personal assistant to the chairman there for a while. What triggered your decision to leave India at 16? Was it that you wanted to be in this big city and move away from your farm? There was a bit of that. I absolutely adored my English grandmother, was incredibly close, even though I'd only seen her a few times. The idea was that I would live with her. So that was part of it. I lived in one of the biggest cities in India, but there was a sense of this is all a bit too small for me. I need to be out there. Ironically, what I ended up doing was moving from Bangalore and everything that that had to offer to a tiny village in the southwest of England where I think I was seen as very, very unusual because in the southwest of England, they are barely exposed to people from the next county, let alone people from India. Your parents were okay about just letting you go? They were supportive. I think they were heartbroken as well. I even remember my dad at one point literally breaking down and crying and saying, oh, I'm going to miss you so much. And are you sure you want to do this? Don't you want to just stay? I have an 18-year-old who's about to go to university. So when I look at it now, I think, wow. My mother was amazingly strong and supportive. My parents put all of their money into the farm. So growing up, we didn't have a lot of cash. It was quite a hand-to-mouth existence. So they had to save up just for the ticket to go to England. And it was pretty clear that once I did that, there was no back and forth. We, we couldn't really afford for them to come or me to go back. It was a clear separation for at least a matter of years. Uh, it was a really tough one. I left my brother, who was 18 months younger, as a kind of little chubby schoolboy and came back and he was grown up. It was quite a weird transition. I mean, it was supportive of them more than that they wanted that to happen. What was Nicole at 16 thinking? You're not going to see your parents for maybe five, six years, seven years, and you were okay with that. I was also naive. I hadn't really thought it through. I was just excited to do something different. 
Bangalore was all I knew academically. I absolutely loved maths. It was my thing. But I also loved geography. And there was no situation in India where I could do both. You either did science or you did arts. You don't do both. I think at, at that point, there were areas where I felt I was being boxed. And England, in a very kind of abstract way, represented opportunity. I don't think I really thought through the implications of what that meant emotionally, etc. It was just an opportunity that I felt I had to pursue. And a grandmother who I loved very much was pushing for me to come and live with her as well. I felt I was the center of a little universe where I was popular. I can do whatever I want. I was quite headstrong that way. I also had parents who all the way through growing up told me I could do whatever I want. I have to say, coming to England, I got all of those aspirations knocked down very quickly, actually, funnily enough. And that was positive and negative because I lost my confidence, which was negative. But I also learned reality a bit, right? I think I was spoiled in being told all the time that I was amazing and wonderful and I kind of hit that reality and I think that was good for me or probably made me a nicer person. So you came to England. Take us through what happened in those initial years. Initially, it was exciting. It was new. Everything was different. There was just this simple stuff like I didn't have many clothes and shoes and all of that. So getting all of those kind of things, the commercial side of things was also quite exciting for me and, and different. Also remember... When I was growing up in India, all I wanted to do was to fit in there. But I didn't feel I did, even though I had really strong friends. I was always treated as a bit different. I was lighter skinned. And that was positive and negative, but I just wanted to be the same as everyone else. I would have certain teachers at school who would say, oh, you're so beautiful, you're fair. I used to hate that. I used to find that so embarrassing because I just didn't want to be treated differently to others. And then I'd have others saying, oh, you're not pronouncing these words right, even though I spoke very good Canada and Hindi and everything at the time. So I got that in India as well. So I also partly thought I would fit in more in England, part of it, because I'd, I'd had a bit of that, you're not quite Indian in India. And then what actually transpired is, no, you're not English in, in England either. So that was a bit of a realization for me. So I kind of saw myself as looking and being English because that's what I'd been told in India. And then I got to England and everyone was like, oh, you're from India, you know. What I basically faced was not racism, but complete ignorance. And I think this was a factor of where in England I was. I was in a very rural, very English place. I really was different. Initially, my accent, of course, which has kind of softened over the years, but it was much more Indian biased at that point. And I got anywhere from, oh, you're Indian to you're Welsh. They, a lot of people thought I was Welsh because the Indian accent and the Welsh accent are both have a sing-songiness to them, etc. But generally, yes, you're different. So then I would have anything from, did you live in a hut when you were in India? And do you go home and change into your costume? In India and in the East, we're so exposed to Western culture and have so much awareness that this level of ignorance just baffled me. I couldn't believe people actually were saying this. So it was definitely not coming from a place where they were trying to be mean. They were genuinely ignorant. So that was a shock. And that definitely meant people were a little bit hands-off with me. So I made some friends, but where in India I felt I was in the middle of it all, I was definitely someone on the outskirts. A few people took the time to get to know me. The teachers were fantastic, but it extended to when I was applying for university here. One of the universities basically said, well, you've got an Indian qualification. So I was getting my A-levels, but obviously my GCSE equivalents were ICSEs, the Indian equivalents, they said, oh, we, we just have to make sure she can speak decent English. We want her to, to sit an English GCSE. I remember the, the head of uh, university stuff in the college I was at was so appalled. And she said, she speaks better English than most of the people here. But I had to sit at the last minute, had to sit an extra exam just to prove I could speak English well enough. But those kind of things really blew my mind because it just didn't occur to me people would be that obvious. And I have to say, through those years and the first two or three years when I was continuing my studies before university, I definitely went from a very confident 15-year-old to quite um, constrained and withdrawn 18-year-old who thought, oh, I, I actually don't do much well. So it really did hit that side of things. So what was the most difficult adjustment you had to make? I guess realizing I was actually very much a peripheral player in a lot of people's worlds, where in India I had been treated mainly by my family, but also by my friends as someone central. 
That was the key point. On the other side, I came with very little money, so I had to work. I had Saturday jobs, and that was a very positive experience. I had to budget. I had to figure out. My grandmother was there to look after me, but in terms of if I wanted to buy something, I had to earn the money for it, etc. So that was another big adjustment that really taught me value of money. It also gave me a lot of independence from 16, 17, which is quite early on to start feeling that way. When did you first go back to India after moving and did you realize that you've changed in some ways? I didn't go back for about 3 to 4 years, but my dad did come over for a holiday in between. So I saw my dad. I went back with a boyfriend. That was quite interesting. It was my first boyfriend and he was the one who was saying, "Oh, I'd love to see India" and convinced me. We both saved money and bought cheap tickets and went back to India. I definitely realized I changed because for one my grandmother treated me like an adult so i was very independent i could come and go as i wanted my parents were very much where are you going when are you coming back and i suddenly went what's happening here i was absolutely convinced i was completely an adult so that was one thing that hit me the biggest shock for me is i almost didn't recognize my brother because he had gone from this little chubby baby brother to someone taller this gorgeous young man we just fell in love with each other again as brother and sister and ever since been incredibly close but it was also just like a hug going back as well and and revisiting old haunts and the food and the everything else it was amazing but some of my closest friends had moved so my cohort wasn't there it wasn't like i could come back and be back to where i was you went to university from rural england to urban england was that a big shock too that was a fantastic thing that was me reblossoming i spent 2 years studying in rural england and then i spent 2 years working to basically earn enough money to go to university i went to university having had 2 years of working in a bank like a cashier just day to day stuff so i went there a bit older than some of the other students and i went there a lot more independent i went in going this is fun compared to actually working for a living this is actually quite good i think that break from academia was really positive and i was ready to just take any opportunity that came i moved to london for the first time ever and this includes india i didn't feel different to anyone else because it's such a melting pot in london right so i was just one of loads of people I just loved it. There's no one asking me questions about where I'm from, what I do, all of that. The experience of being independent, of working couple years meant that I could really take advantage of opportunities. For instance, the university I was at had an exchange program with the US. My university had two specialities, an engineering specialty and a finance one. All of their exchange programs were very much geared to engineering. But I went in there and said, "Hey, I'd like to do it and they said oh you know no one from finance has ever asked I said okay well I'm asking so why not and then they had to kind of talk to the head of the finance department basically I pushed all of that which honestly I just wouldn't have done in a in a different situation and which meant in my second year of university I went to the states for a year and had that experience which was also fantastic and different and I embraced that what I really got out of it was enjoy make the most and don't worry if things don't work out as well because I have to tell you in my 2 to 4 years before university I wanted to do almost every different career on a weekly basis. I was going to be an architect, I was going to be this. I was never going to be a financier. That was certainly not one of the things. I was going to be a mathematician. I worked for a bank and they said, "Hey, you do this quite well. If you go to university and study finance, we'll pay you a bit to do it." Once you. And I went, "Yeah, thank you. I'll do that." So I was just quite happy to roll with it, change course and see where that took me. That I think was an invaluable thing because I ended up doing something I never would have guessed. but i really enjoyed it uh and i'm good at it you were the youngest managing director 29 how did that happen talk to us about your career trajectory were you ever hampered by the fact that you were a woman and half indian as you were trying to climb the ladder in banking i would say on average no there were things that it did hamper i progressed quite quickly and part of that was being at the right place at the right time i worked very hard i did but that's not to say others don't what i figured out early on in finance is you need to be decently good but you really have to be able to read people the people who do well in finance are not people who are technically good they're people who can play people that combination was important but actually what appealed to me was the technical nerdy side 
but I was actually not bad at the other side, so I could do that too. But what really made me enjoy it was running the models and doing all of that stuff, which is, as I started to progress, is what I ended up doing less and less of, actually, and more and more of the stuff I didn't enjoy, which was the politics and the playing of people, etc., to the point that probably for me, the least positive thing was becoming a managing director at Deutsche, because by that point, my job became all about politics. There's an interesting book called The Dark Towers that's been written about Deutsche Bank, which shows what a messed up place it was. And funnily enough, a lot of the characters mentioned in there, by the way, of Indian origin, a few of them, I worked with. What I would say is what I seem to let slide, which I wouldn't let slide anymore, things like, hey, Nicole, as a mid-20-year-old, we're going to see a client wear a short dress. He'll appreciate that. And I used to not react to that and just carry on and say, oh, it's just the way things are. I wish, looking back, I'd been a bit more pushy to say, hey, I'm not asking you to wear a certain type of suit or whatever, but I didn't. So I don't think my progress was impeded by it, but I dealt with that stuff all the way through those comments, the fact that first impressions were looks, not about my technical ability, not what I could do. And that's true for all my female colleagues. I don't think there was the Indian thing as much, the thing of color, especially in finance, I have to say, Indians dominate. And if anything, you know, the reputation, whether rightly or wrongly, is that we're smarter, nerdier, better. That could have maybe almost helped me to some extent. So I, I would say that didn't, but being a woman certainly had its challenges. I was thinking about the fact that as a married woman, your mother had to quit air hostessing and become ground crew because she was no longer somebody people can lust after or you know, desire as a single woman. And as a banker, you were asked to wear short dresses and things like that because that makes you more womanly and more attractive to people. In today's environment of Me Too, none of those would have run. No, but you know what? I don't think the people who are at the top of banks are the same people. So the suggestion that they have completely changed the way they think is hopeful. They are less verbal about it. But what really has to change is the kind of people who are running this, who need to be more women, more people of color, etc., because then the attitudes will properly change. It's coming. But we're not there. We're far from there. Certainly, finance as an industry has appalling statistics. It's mainly white men, right? Definitely, there is that old boys club thing. They go out drinking afterwards or they play their golf or whatever. I try to fit in with that. And what I don't do now is fit in with that. I'm me. You accept me and you deal with me and what I do. But I have to say, and this is the confidence building and my lack of confidence as a younger woman, I tried not to stand out in my life and just get my head down, do the best I can and move up that way. I worked hard, but I also think I had luck along the way, but I was good at taking opportunity. What do you think was the skill you brought to the table that helped you rise up the ladder? And did you have a mentor helping you along the way? I think as a skill, adaptability. I definitely had technical skill, but so did others. Finance is about adaptability and experience, right? There's no one that comes up with an original thought in finance. It's literally just taking an, a thought that you had in a different situation and applying it to the one you've done. I picked that up pretty quickly. And actually, funny enough, two, three weeks in my first job in banking, I was convinced I'd made a horrible mistake. I actually spoke to the guy who was the mentor to the associate program. And I said, I think you guys have made a horrible mistake because I've just sat in a meeting with two other members and they had really cool ideas that they were bouncing around. I had nothing to contribute. And he said, okay, so those are two managing directors who have been in this business for 15 years. You've been in the business for 15 minutes. So really, you think that you have lots to contribute? Basically, what you need to do is listen, absorb, and then next time around, you may be able to contribute a little something and more and more. It, it helped me get over my imposter syndrome, which I did have for a while. And I kept thinking, how are they paying me so much for not knowing much? That was a fantastic piece of advice, actually. And that really helped me every time to readjust and say, nope, you've been here. I say this to junior members of my team now. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online 
you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Now as well. In terms of mentors, I worked with many men. Uh, in fact, my first job was in real estate within Bankers Trust. And I was the only woman and I was an associate. Everybody else was VP, MD or higher. So senior men, I basically did work for all of them. It started with, we've got this young thing there to do stuff, but they soon figured that I was good at what I did and, and they could use me for my brain. Within that team, there was a guy called Shamil Khan, who was from Trinidad, actually, kind of of Indian origin and worked with him. He taught me to always ask questions as basic or as stupid as you think they are, ask them always. And I insist on this and I have insisted on this throughout my career, thanks to him. I guess the second mentor who I still work with, by the way, is uh, Lemmy, Lemmy Gresh, who is uh, Egyptian Lebanese. He was my second main boss within Bankers Trust. We started our relationship in a very torrentially bad way. I, I was always headstrong and happy to make my point. To give him his due, he listened and let me make my point in a very strong way. We would have actually stand-up arguments from time to time. And bearing in mind, we sat on a trading floor. It was very public, so everyone got to see it. The rest of the team, other teams. I look back and I have a lot of respect for him that as an MD, he allowed this associate turning VP to do that. It takes a lot of self-confidence to allow someone to do that. What I learned from him is that you could have these stand-up rows, have very different perspectives, but still really respect each other and learn from each other. We're still combative. I'm probably more honest with him than anyone else. And I can be completely myself, as can he. And I still respect immensely what he brings to our relationship and our business. We still work together. Those were great mentors. After that, I had my first female boss. I was super excited about the idea of having a female boss. I was horribly disappointed because she lacked confidence and therefore was a bit paranoid and just always assumed I wanted her job all the way through our relationship, which became more and more difficult as a result. And I ended up actually resigning from Deutsche Bank because of her. I felt, wow, this is a relationship that's going nowhere. And I wanted someone who I could trust and who trusted me, etc. Funny enough, she resigned in the same week and I ended up staying at Deutsche Bank. That was one of the most disappointing things because I was so excited about a female boss and it was exactly not what I was expecting. How has that taught you to be a different type of female boss? And do you consciously try and mentor young women and maybe even women of color? I do, but I also mentor men. I'm happy to mentor whoever wants me to mentor them, to be honest. We are a very small firm, about 40 people. We're actually very diverse for the industry, not diverse enough for the world. Almost 60% of our staff are women. What I see is junior male staff come in and tell me how great they are at everything. And then my junior female staff come in and tell me what they're not so good at. It's incredibly sexist thing to say, but I see that over and over again. So quite a lot of what I do with female staff is I will listen for about five minutes. Then I cut them off and I go, okay, now I want you to spend 10 minutes telling me what you're good at. Whether that's kind of a mentorship or not, I do that across the board. If, if I hear any member of staff tells me about what they can't do, I stop them and say, now I want to hear what you can do. And then we sit down and say, okay, do you see what you're doing here? You're, you're focusing on the few things that you need to improve, which is great. It's good that you recognize that. But there is so much that you do so well that you never focus on. I see that time and time again. And that for me is a huge lesson learned. But it's just being yourself and different is good. That different actually brings an element. It's not something you have to apologize for or overcome. It's absolutely additive to what we do. I've been in quite a few conferences where 
senior women with more junior women. We chat and some of them say, so what I'm doing is really learning about football so I can be part of the chat. And I went, "Mm, almost all those men will have kids or are married or whatever. You can talk about anything. You don't have to be them to identify with them and, and figure out how they can identify with you. And I've never had a problem with saying, I know nothing about football. However, happy to chat about this. What do you think? No one's had a problem with that. So not being worried to be yourself and be different is my key, key message. And also just keep reinforcing what you do well is really important for everyone. I have to say women need to be told that more often. That's so interesting. I have two sons and uh, when they were younger, I started taking interest in football and golf and stuff like that just so that I could spend time with my sons. So I had something to talk to them about. To be fair, I did do that with hockey. My daughter's absolutely hockey mad and I'm not a sporty person, but I have learned about hockey just so that I'm part of the conversation. Did you ever stop to think, where have I reached? Was there ever this kind of aha moment? Yeah, it actually came a few years ago when someone asked me to do this kind of discussion. And and that's when it hit me. It didn't even occur to me that what I'd done was unusual or different or anything. And I started answering a lot of questions like, how did you get where you are? I started writing lucky a lot, I realized. I was like, oh, I was lucky, I was lucky, I was lucky, I was lucky. And it's funny enough, I showed it to someone I worked with and they went, but you work so hard. You're good at what you do. And that was the first time, probably 10 years ago, it suddenly hit me. And what I realized was the imposter syndrome had been with me pretty much till that point. I was still always thinking, oh, I'm a bit lucky that I've, I've landed this job. I'm a bit lucky that I've made this promotion. And I kept assuming there was bits of me they weren't seeing. It was an aha moment. Hey, stop it. Actually, it turns out you're good. That's okay. Admit it. You are doing at least as well as these people around you. What is your problem? I kept feeling I had to prove myself. I would say literally my early 40s where that hit, right? Really late in the day. And this hard worker, did she ever find time for a personal life? I I know you're married, but how did that fit into your hardworking lifestyle? Did you ever think of being with an Indian man? My first love and crush and all that were definitely Indian. When I was growing up in India, I had a a friend whose older brother I absolutely crushed on. I don't think I ever consciously thought it has to be Indian, has to be English, has to be Mexican. To your point about socializing, being in finance killed my social life. So the first few years, I literally, over a matter of months, managed to cut ties with everyone just because there were so many times I would flake. They'd say, oh, let's meet up. And then I was caught up with work and I couldn't meet up. After a few months, they stopped inviting me because I kept doing that. So I went through a phase where work was all encompassing. Any social life I had was with people I worked. You finish work at 10 and they go, let's go have a drink. I didn't feel it at the time, but looking back, I realized that was quite sad. And I've tried to reestablish those connections since. And I have done that a little bit, but you know, not to the degree I could have. How I met my husband. I worked with him, really dull, boring, not the same team, but in Bankers Trust, a really good friend of mine worked in his team. So we used to have lunch together from time to time and it developed from there. And that was convenient. I have to say, we both worked, we both had crazy hours, but we were both understanding of that. Where it really first hit me was as I was coming up to 30-ish, I was like, okay, I want kids. Now, my husband had always said to me, I don't want kids. I don't want to get married. He'd come from a kind of a difficult upbringing where his father had left, etc. So he was very clear. But I wanted kids. I raised that. He said, look, not straight away, but in the next year or two, I want to start thinking about this. And if you are still absolutely clear you don't want kids, we need to think about this relationship because I'm clear I do. To be fair to him, he's much more thoughtful than me. I just jump into stuff. Uh, He did think it through and he said, yeah, okay, let's do that. That was the first time I started to think about connections and a world outside of work. Of course, I got pregnant like that. Obviously, I started to think, okay, so now I'm going to be responsible for this person inside me. I need to start thinking beyond this work. I think it hit me on my second scan where two, three, four of my scans 
I was running into the scan, literally just made it out of work, rushed to the hospital. And I remember the radiologist saying, your, your baby seems quite active. And I couldn't bring myself to say it's because I literally ran in here. So the baby's probably just been kind of jolted around because I'm not stopping. I was like, okay, I need a break. A lot of my job had become politics and I didn't enjoy that. I then thought this is a great excuse to get out of here without saying, you guys are annoying me. I can just say, hey, I've decided I want to have time with my child. So that's what I did. I had a lot of people trying to convince me to stay and explaining, we'll make you so much money. You can hire people to mother for you. But having been brought up by parents who gave up everything to spend time with me, it was pretty obvious that I I'm not going to have a child not to spend time with them. So I ended up uh, leaving Deutsche Bank. And that's when I started to really appreciate this concept of a, a life balance. I left finance convinced you either had to give your whole life to it or leave it. So then I decided, oh, I'll become a maths teacher. I'll go back and train. That's literally what I was in the process of researching when Lemmy, my boss back at Bankers Trust, called me and said, hey, I've got a job for you, but it's just part time. It's way below your pay grade. It's, it's really something you can do with your hands tied behind your back. I'm almost embarrassed to offer it to you, but it gives you that life balance. I was ecstatic because what it did was it brought me back to everything in finance I enjoyed. The actual work, the technical side, the, no FaceTime, no worrying, working from home. I was just judged by output. It didn't matter how long it took me or where I did it or how I did it. I just needed to produce certain things. I loved it. I was at a really happy place. And this had come with two years of not working, where I thought I was going to be this fantastic Mother Earth type person. I absolutely was not. I didn't enjoy baking. None of that stuff worked. I was trying the cooking organic food for my daughter. The first time she threw it on the floor, I was like, I'm not doing that again. I'm just going to buy the stuff. So it also made me start to realize the things I wasn't, that I, for the longest time, fantasized that I was, and I just wasn't. So it was a really good way for me to figure out what I liked and what I didn't like and what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do. In my 30s, I was really able to figure out life balances, which was kind of coming into myself for the first time, really. From your experience, can you give any advice to women beginning a career in finance? Yeah, absolutely. Which is don't listen to the crap. So what happens is everyone says, oh, you can't do that because the deal is king. There's a deadline and you have to meet it. If that deadline happens to be at midnight on a Friday, you have to be there. Or if it happens to be midnight Friday in Paris, you better be there. And that's just not true. These are all manufactured things by humans. No one dies if a deal takes two days longer to complete. Nothing we do in finance is life-changing. What has happened is over decades, men who have needed validation through their careers have set these crazy deadlines. That whole conversation has to change. Now, that's quite a hard thing to do, but that's what you have to do. Say, I'm going to deliver. Tell me what you want delivered. Give me the time to do it and I will deliver it. For instance, when I started my new job, I had Thursdays off and I worked from home on a Monday. So I would say I'm not having any meetings, taking no calls. Lemmy, my boss, who's incredibly supportive, would say, don't tell them you're part-time. Just say you're working on another deal. Initially, I was like, yeah, I'll go along with that. And then the aha moment went, no, nothing to be ashamed about that I work part-time, that I have a child. So I stopped. And I have never had a problem with any client to say, I'm not doing this on a Thursday because I spend time with my daughter. Can I do it on a Friday? The point is just be bold enough to say that because there is nothing that is important. I think it may be a bit different if you're an A&E doctor, but let's put it in perspective. What we do here is not that important. If I was to lose this job tomorrow, it's no big deal. I'll go and find something else. And it's really important to know that. If you can bring that attitude to what you do, what you end up doing is actually being very good at what you do, but having a, a level of balance. That's what I didn't do in investment banking and what I learned to do in MV credit. I've actually been a better professional as a result. I'll be very candid. By the time I finished with Deutsche Bank, I didn't need to work for money. The work was intellectually stimulating. If you're in that lucky position, that is a very freeing position 
Whereas if you have to, before that, I had to work just to pay the bills. So then it's a bit more difficult to say, oh, you don't need this job because you kind of do. But if you can be in the position where you have a bit of financial independence, and I'm not talking about for the rest of your life, but enough to say, yeah, I'm going to take six months off and get the next job. It's not a big deal. But you have to believe in yourself to do that. The key is the belief that what you do is good enough that you'll find something else. The other thing, I have an ego, but I didn't have a problem thinking, if I can't do this, I can actually go and work in a supermarket. Something I do say to women who talk to me about how do I come back from taking time off to have a child or whatever is put aside the, oh, I left as this, I have to come back as this. Think about what you actually want to do and enjoy doing. And also, if you want a job that gives you that kind of balance, figure out what you want to do and stop labeling it, saying, I used to be in VP. That's just a title. That's not a job description. And make sure you get paid well, et cetera, and you're, you're being appreciated. Honestly, I'm seeing it more and more. I'm so encouraged by the next generation who are much clearer about what they want to do and how they want to do it. It helps to have women my age there to support them, push them on, make sure that's happening. I'm one of the managing partners and I consistently insist on that balance. I have to say on that, my male colleagues do it too, which is great. I want to pivot and talk about your marriage. I think intrinsically you identify more with your Indian part. Was there any cultural nuances or differences once you got married to your husband and how have you balanced those? My husband's quintessentially English, which is don't show emotion, don't show anything. Whereas I am very much heart on my sleeve. I like to hug someone when I'm feeling happy. I like to cry when I'm feeling sad. Initially, I think he found it just all very awkward and, and embarrassing. And I was just confused why he wasn't that way. What's happened over the years is he's become a bit more like me and I've become a bit more like him. I've, I've learned too much emotion from me can be embarrassing for him. So I leave that for my girlfriends. But on the other hand, he's become much more demonstrative. And oh, more than anything, having our daughter is what opened him up. He's just, he's much less concerned about being seen as foolish or silly or non-serious. Honestly, he was so uptight and found it so difficult to express any emotions, etc. I have to say much more credit to my daughter has really opened up what I consider the Indian side, right? That openness, that community feel. Having said that, your father was like that and he was English. My dad absolutely embraced Indian culture. He was released from his kind of prison of conservatism. My mama always said he was much more Indian than she was in, in his attitudes and the way he was about things. What's really fascinating though is my daughter, who's a quarter Indian, lived in England all her life, really identifies with her Indian side as well and kind of gravitates to the Indian friends in quite an international school. She's as proud, which I'm so delighted about, of that heritage. She's about, about to go to university. I had to buy her a little masala dabba with all of her stuff so she can cook. Did your daughter meet your parents often? My parents are half and half. They spend half the year with me here in the UK and half the year in India. When my daughter was younger, my parents actually spent most of their time here. They moved over for a few years. When I went back to work, to help with her upbringing because my husband was working as well at the time. My husband's been retired for a few years. Funnily enough, he's taken on more of the parenting role and the home role. So it feels like my parents again when I was growing up. Your parents moved and lived with you when your daughter was young. How did your husband react to having in-laws living with him? This is really interesting because he was the one who suggested initially, because what had happened when Ella was a baby, we'd, we'd spent a few months of the year in India with them when neither of us were working. He saw how amazingly well my parents got on with Ella and she got on with them. And then within a matter of months, we both got job offers that we were considering. And it was his suggestion in the first instance. And I said, look, are you absolutely sure about this? Because I know my parents can annoy you from time to time. And he is so kind of fiercely independent of his privacy. In India, privacy just doesn't exist. Everyone's in everyone's kind of space. He said, no, I, I think this is the right thing for Ella. I think we can live with it. For the longest time, we had a house with an annex that was separate. So they had their own house and space. We had our own house and space. We came together when we needed to come together, but we also had our independence. That was really important. I don't think it would have worked without that. Also, 
for my parents living in our house. That's really tough as well. So that worked really well. A few years ago, we moved. So we're now in one house and that's a bit more challenging. What is the biggest challenge that your husband and you face when you have your parents over? Is it a cultural thing or is it more of a personality thing? It's a bit of both because it's the point I was making. In India, everyone is together. You eat together, you cook together, you talk together. And my husband likes things a bit more compartmentalized. So he wants time where he knows for sure he doesn't have to see my parents or he doesn't have to see someone else. And it is his space, his time. That meant talking to my parents and saying, okay, you need to give us space. Which, to be honest, even though my dad really embraced the Indian culture, he also got it because he also had to get used to living with his in-laws in India because my grandparents would live with me. And he did find that challenging from time to time as well. I think he got that more than my mom did initially, but they both are incredibly flexible. Even though you, your husband and your daughter loved India, the question of ever moving to India had never occurred to you. Would you have ever considered that? Honestly, there are bits about India I love. But um, there are also bits that really bug me. I admit that there's a westernization that's happened to me. Things that will get you places versus just being entitled because you're a human being bothers me much more now than it did do mm. before. I find it really annoying if I'm standing in a queue and a politician walks past and goes to the front of the queue because he or she is a politician. It happens just all the time in every walk of life. I can deal with it when I'm on holiday. For me, what is Fantastic about India is the escape. I can go back and have a holiday on my own terms. I hope to retire in the next few years, hopefully, and then I can do it for longer because at the moment it's been very much a couple of weeks here, a couple of weeks there based on kids' school schedules, etc. Now my daughter's at university. I can go and actually spend real time, which is what we've wanted to do for the longest time. Really explore India because we go back predominantly to the same places and there's so much of India that I want to go and see properly. So that's my next adventure there. As somebody who was raised in India in a very unusual way, uh, how have you brought that to raising your daughter? Definitely the concept of sitting together, eating together, playing together is part of my Indian upbringing that I've brought to her. What I've brought is this sense of you do not have to conform, which is what I finally figured out. And she's doing that a little bit now. She's just gone and dyed her hair bright orange. And, I, and, and actually, one of my Indian friends said, how did you deal with that? And I said, I loved it. She's 18. If there's any time to go and do something crazy, do it. I wish I'd done more of that. Basically, I think what I brought to my daughter is any crazy suggestion she's made, I've said, go for it. I'm lucky in that she doesn't make very crazy suggestions. She doesn't come back and say, I want to go off and get married and, and take this drug. And so we're not talking about that kind of situation. One of my kind of male-female things that really winds me up, and I see this with my female friends who have daughters and sons, is how judgmental they can be about girls' appearance and girls' behavior versus boys who can do what they like. My mom didn't buy into that either, which is, one, you don't have to look pretty. If you have a look that you enjoy, which isn't pretty, that's fine. Go for it. Two, if you want to explore and kiss a boy, you are as entitled to do that as the boy who wants to kiss you. And you don't have to feel guilty about it. Make a big deal about it. He's not going to be your love for the rest of your life. Just go and enjoy yourself. In India, it was very much instilled that if you even look at a boy, you are ganda, shameful. I found that really oppressive. Not at the time. At the time, I totally bought into it. But I look back now. I, I remember one of my Indian friends with a little daughter ran into the toilet and just had her wee and she hadn't shut the door. And my friend was like, that's shame you're showing. And I'm like, oh my God, she's three. Please don't do this to her. That's a kind of an anti-Indianness that I've learned and trying to instill because, and I think India's moved on a lot since then. What about the typical Desi thing about encouraging your daughter to pursue certain careers? I've left her own completely and she's gone for medicine. Cannot be more... <laughs> In fact, I said, are you sure? Like, that's such a difficult thing to do. But she's absolutely desperate to do that. I was suggesting, uh, well, acting at one point, singing. She really enjoyed her music. I was saying, you can do whatever you like. Go for it. Think of something crazy. And I was really annoyed the first careers day when so anything different. It was like accountants, lawyers, you know, all that kind of stuff. I guess a private school. But it was quite disappointing. What I've taught my daughter thinks I'm very unconventional. I think she enjoys that more than I used to enjoy my parents being that way. 
one of the things I say is that I have my own things that I want to do and pursue, which are separate to her, and that's okay. Just because I have a child doesn't mean all my life revolves around them. While they are my life, my life isn't them. Because there are the stay-at-home moms who are all about the kids, but then they almost lose themselves. They become non-persons. From the farm in Bangalore to your home in Kent, has there been one constant in your life? Wow, that's a tough one. Support group family, definitely. I would say all the way through, completely 100%. Um, and then within myself, probably generally an optimism. Most things will work the right way. Um, not being so afraid of it. You talked about maybe retiring in a few years. Is that on the card? And what do you want to do after that? I hope it's on the card. I talked about Lemmy as a mentor. He is 20 years or so older than me and I've seen him do this now and I'm not going to wait 10, 20 years to do it. You can hand the baton over in a nice way. I want to spend more time with my husband who is very much taking the back seat to my daughter and my career for a while. We want to play golf together. We want to travel together. Uh, we have a dog. I enjoy things like yoga and outdoors, but I just don't do it. The other thing I'd like to do in my climate years is do carpentry, crafty stuff, make something physical. That's my kind of project. Maybe revive an acting career? You did act. A little bit, on and off. As a child, we did a lot of am Amdram, but really in, in Bangalore, it was quite big. We would play some of the biggest theatres and stuff. And my brother is really good. I did have a little... Spate, when I was at university, I went back to India on holiday and I acted for Indian TV, for Doodarshan, called Sangeet Ganga. It was supposed to be 60 episodes on different cultural aspects of India. They made the first four episodes and then they didn't make the rest of the 56. They played these four episodes over and over again on Doodarshan. It was fun. It was fun. It's a distraction, though. I don't think I'm good at it. I have a rapid fire round for you. Are you ready? I think so. Let's see how I do. What's your favorite pastime? Cooking. What's your favorite thing to cook? Any kind of Indian food. Bangalore or London? London on balance. Your favorite childhood memory? Summers, having a swim, coming back to the house to play carom with my brother before a dal and rice lunch. Your favorite London restaurant? Dishum. Your favorite holiday destination? The place that absolutely wowed me was the Andaman and Nicobar but on a regular basis, Goa. The best thing about India. Honestly, the people are just incredible. The food is the obvious thing to say, but actually the people just make it home. And the best thing about the UK? The best thing about London, it's the most cosmopolitan place I've ever been. But that's London specific. So I can just say the best thing about London? Fitting in. I finally fit in because it's so different. Your favorite accessory? A good handbag, actually. Your go-to workout? Yoga on YouTube. Nicole, what a fantastic conversation. Thank you for taking time to chat with the Aikman team. For all our listeners, do follow us on our social media handle at Aikman Global, where you'll find a link to this and all our previous podcasts. Thank you for tuning in and listening. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. It's been a pleasure.